Amen. Thank you, Pastor Randy. Good morning, Church of Mill. Wonderful to see so many of you here and grateful to uh, be opening the scriptures with you. We'll be in Acts chapter 19 today. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me there. And if you grabbed one of those blue ones in the back on the way in, I will be on page 541 on those. If you didn't grab one, feel free to jump up and get one. Uh, page 541. And we'd encourage you to take those home with you if uh, you don't have a Bible of your own. Uh, if you're new with us, I want to say especially welcome to you this morning. Thanks for coming. My name's Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, our habit every Sunday morning is to begin a new week uh, by listening. And so we open the scriptures together and we seek to hear what God says in His Word. And most of the year, we simply work our way book by book, passage by passage through the scriptures because we Christians believe that what we most need is to hear from God, and the way we'll hear from God is by opening His Word and seeking to uh, understand what He says. We've tried to build the church in such a way that the, the sermon is not a, a single event, but rather it's the start of a conversation, and so uh, we have small groups built around uh, discussing what the passage that we preach and our, our collegiate ministry has uh, challenged communities that do the same thing, and lots of people are in relationships with one another. So consider taking a few notes and then seeing who you can catch up with this week in terms of continuing to discuss uh, what's there. We have been for several months uh, working through the book of Acts, which covers events after Jesus' resurrection through the next uh, couple of decades. And so it helps us understand where the church came from and what God's continuing to say and do uh, today. If, uh, again, if you're new, I would encourage you to jump on the church website. You can learn more about us there and uh, stick around on the patio afterwards. There'll be a variety of people you can visit with out there. So to say a special uh, hello and welcome to those of you who have got kids. So thankful for uh, you coming this morning. Here is one wonderful child right here. In the, where are you going? You're leaving. Okay, awesome. Um, if you need to go to the side, feel free. Um, in addition, uh, parents, particularly if you have little kids, we have um, in the preschool building, so if you go out these doors and turn to the left, the next building you'll come to is the preschool building, and the northernmost room in that building now has um, a live stream set up. So if you need to change a diaper or you uh, just need to run around a little bit, parents or children, feel free to to head over there. So we'll be in Acts um, 19 this morning. Um, one of the supporting themes throughout the book of Acts is one that's easy to miss, but it's definitely an issue Luke, the human author of Acts, intended us to see. And it's the sub-theme that Christians are not criminals. Uh, so you see, following Jesus does not equal a refusal to submit to Caesar. While we reject much of what our non-Christians peer uh, peers prize, we're not after the ruin of secular society. We Christians believe that our citizenship is ultimately in heaven, but that doesn't mean that while we're here on earth, we're seeking to wrestle control of all the power structures of a fallen world nor are we out to manufacture a knockoff version of heaven here on earth. 
our goal is not a Christian city or a Christian nation. There will be no such thing until Christ returns. We believers are never to try to usurp the power of the state. It's true, brothers and sisters, that our allegiance is fully and finally with Jesus Christ. But that reality doesn't make us bad neighbors or citizens. Quite the opposite. We are not to be seditious anarchists or anything remotely similar to that. Our passage today will develop these themes, and this will certainly not be without controversy, especially right now. And so I wonder if I could ask you please to humbly suspend judgment until you've really listened to the text and prayerfully considered its meaning and its application in our own lives today. In the words of Augustine, in his famous book, uh, The City of God, which was written during the fall of Rome, he wrote, faith can assure our exodus from Babylon, but our pilgrim status for the time being makes us neighbors. So Christians set out to be really great neighbors in society. We don't seek to become the controllers of society. We Christians are not enemies of the state. We submit and support. That's it. Our passage this morning is going to develop this theme in a most unusual way. Acts chapter 19, in particular the second half, demonstrates how Christians in the first century worked out the complexity of being people who both followed Jesus and submitted to Rome. But it also shows us how Christians can, in fact, transform society without giving ourselves to coercive means. We'll pick up our study this morning in chapter 19, verse 21. Dakota Harvey is going to come read for us. Um, as she comes, uh, we'll remember that this passage took place in Ephesus, which is the same location as the city we were looking at last week. Dakota, thanks for being willing to read for us. Go for it. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Aristus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, he rose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that not from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in all, almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Mm -hmm. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into dispute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, whom all Asia and the world worshipped. Thank you. Dakota is one of our newer church members. would encourage you to get to know her. She's got a great story of how the Lord has saved her. Thanks for reading for us this morning. At this point in Acts, Paul, the apostle, has spent nearly three years in Ephesus. For him, that was really putting down roots 
Ephesus now had a, a faithful, thriving, church-planting church in no small part due to Paul's investment over that period of three years. We know from verse 10, which we looked at last week, that for two of those years, he rented a hall and taught every day the scriptures to anyone who would come and would listen. What effect did that level of preaching and teaching have on the city of Ephesus? What impact did two years straight of daily teaching make on this great city? Well, apparently a rather sizable one. You see, as the gospel first took root and then began to bear fruit, it seems enough people became Christians that the priorities of the city began to shift. In fact, the new lifestyle of the Christians was altered enough that it began to upset the status quo economically. Some tradesmen in particular felt threatened by the volume of Christians, and they were afraid their businesses would go under. Now that will take a couple minutes of explanation, so see if you can bear with me. The temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Artemis was the goddess of fertility and the mistress of wild animals. Her temple was enormous. Uh, many of you will have seen pictures or studied in school the Parthenon in Athens up on the Acropolis. And the temple of Artemis was four times the size of the Parthenon. It was enormous. But more than the temple's size was the scope of its influence. Artemis was the heart and soul of the city of Ephesus. The worship of the goddess was literally woven into the fabric of everyday life. From things like going to the market to buy food, everyday things, all the way to massive annual celebrations. Artemis really reigned supreme. And so consequently, idolatry could be found in every nook and cranny of society. Now before we go on, let's take a moment and consider the question of applicability. Because even as we start talking about idolatry and these ancient temples, uh, for some of us, our eyes begin to gloss over and we start drifting back into the Sunday morning sleep. While interesting, does a chapter in the Bible on idolatry have anything to do with our lives today? I mean, after all, it's true. There, there are no gigantic temples to false gods in Ephesus. That was then, this is today, you might say. And frankly, I think that's an understandable objection to a passage like this. But if we flesh that objection out a bit, then it turns out it seems even more on point. It might go something like this. Tempe is not a polytheistic city. We don't travel here. People don't come here to bow down to statues, nor to put their hopes in temples to gods and goddesses. We've moved beyond all that. We prize ourselves on being a secular culture. We hardly believe in God anymore. That's what many people would say. 
But friends, that's a rather naive way of understanding both ancient and modern life. Because you see, people did not worship Artemis, which was merely a statue. People didn't worship Artemis because they viewed her as intrinsically lovely. No, they bowed down to her because of what they believed she would give them. That's what the worship of the goddess was about. The worship of Artemis was merely a method to obtain what it was she was thought to be the power broker of. Fertility, wealth, food, protection. See, Artemis was simply a means to an end. That's all. Do you recognize then, church, that idolatry is everywhere? We don't need temples and statues to engage in the worship of false gods. As Calvin famously put it 500 years ago, the human heart is a factory of idolatry. Our fallen affections are ever prostrated before gods of our own making, whether there's a statue in a temple or not. An idol, you see, is anything or anyone you look to as your ultimate source of hope, of happiness, of meaning, of fulfillment, of identity. One pastor put it this way, idolatry is not doing bad things. Idolatry is taking good things and making them ultimate things. Idolatry is taking relative and created things and turning them into absolutes. Now you can do that with or without a temple, with or without a statue. This means then that work, kids, beauty, success, education, money, health, anything can become a kind of salvation and therefore a form of worship. Which means, of course, that from the Ephesians who worshipped Artemis to us today, we really are no different. Except, perhaps for this one thing, our worship of false gods is merely more efficient. We, we, we haven't built temples that we have to go to. We can just stay home and do this. We've simply cut out the, the go-betweens. This is why the Bible so consistently talks about idolatry. It's because every single one of us is prone to it, no matter what culture we live in or what kind of buildings are erected around us. It is an inescapable part of fallen humanity, and it remains an ever-present temptation for each and every one of us. That makes it so critically important that we listen to what God says. As Paul preached the gospel, God saved and sanctified people. And as they came to see Jesus as king and God as sufficient to meet their legitimate needs, then they quit worshiping Artemis. And over time in the city of Ephesus, enough people went through that transformation that the fabric of Ephesian society began to change. And not everybody liked that, including in the paragraph Dakota read for us, Demetrius. Demetrius was a, a silversmith. His customer base 
were worshipers of Artemis. He made shrines of the temple so that you could set it up on a shelf in your house and you could stay home and worship the goddess instead of traveling back to Ephesus. As the number of Christians in the town grew and their behavior changed, Demetrius felt threatened. And so, essentially, he called the union of craftsmen together. And he held a meeting. And their sole agenda item was to figure out how do we stop the spread of Christianity. Now, if you look carefully at verse 25, you'll see the foundational motive of his heart. His concern was this, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. That's rather telling. While he appealed to their religious scruples later in his speech, it's clear that the the baseline underlying foundation was financial. If Christians stopped worshiping Artemis, then they'd stop buying shrines. And if they stopped buying shrines, then they'd lose their lucrative business. The well of wealth would run dry. Demetrius made no attempt to conceal his greed. As Jesus said, you can't serve God and money. Demetrius' main concern wasn't, was, was not Artemis' honor, it wasn't doctrine, it wasn't a zeal for the truth. No, it was purely financial. Stop and think for a minute with me about the fact that whole industries are erected around our idolatry. Church, if we became absolutely convinced that Jesus is Lord and that God alone deserves our worship and that He reigns supreme and that He will graciously grant us all that we truly need, Imagine how that would change our spending habits. If Christians ceased financial transactions rooted in idolatry, the blow to some industries around us would be enormous. In Demetrius, though, we see something of ourselves. Sinners will do whatever they can to protect their idolatry. Now let's read on and see what happened. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the whole city was thrown into confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristocrus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the aristocrats, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews put forth. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! 
there's a certain madness to crowds. We see that on the nightly news, on Facebook, and in the Bible. Earlier in the Scriptures, a riotous Jerusalem crowd cried out for Jesus to be killed, and He was. And a riotous Ephesian mob demanded the end of Christianity in Ephesus, most likely because Paul couldn't be located, two of his friends were drugged into the theater, and the theater being described in this passage still exists today. Here's a picture of it from a drone, so up high in the sky. You can see the way it's carved into the mountain. This is in modern-day Turkey. This theater seats 25,000 people. You can see a closer-up picture here. The acoustics of the place are incredible. Because of the way it sits in the mountain, I have stood on the stage, and you can talk just like I'm talking now, and people in the back can hear you. Years ago, you 2 put on a concert here, and uh, the acoustics, uh, coupled with the modern sound system, literally cracked the back of the theater, so they don't do performances there anymore. But picture with me, if you would, those t thousands of people chanting there. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Over and over and over and over and over and over. As the leaders of the mob sought some means to force legal action against the Christians, that's what this was about, the crowd continued to chant for Artemis. I find verse 32 to be one of those verses that ought to keep us up at night, ought to, ought to trouble us that we could end up doing something similar. So many of the people chanting there in that theater had no idea why they were there. They didn't know what started the riot, nor did they know the motive of the craftsmen that got them all stirred up in the first place. Furthermore, as verse 33 points out, they didn't know the difference between what the Jews who rejected Jesus believed, and what the Christians who worshipped Jesus did believe. This crowd was a hot mess. They were chanting allegiance to Artemis because that's what everybody else was doing. Church, be very careful about what cause you pick up and what bandwagon you jump on. Not everything is what it seems. Be mindful about what tweets you retweet, what conversations you choose to assert. Ignorance is not bliss. It's very easy, like that crowd, to have a zeal without knowledge. We Christians need to be people who, in great humility, have knowledge and zeal. The organizers of the riot were concerned with their money, but that fact was lost in the crowd. Like cows headed to a slaughter, these worshipers gave themselves to the madness of the crowd without knowing why. Now, in most instances like this in the book of Acts, and there's been several of them, 
Most of the time when this happened, the end result was violent persecution. Paul had the scars on his body to prove it. But this time, his friends held him back. I imagine it took physical constraint. They knew the mob would try to kill him. And so they asserted themselves and restrained him from entering into the theater. And eventually, the person in charge of calling the civil authorities to legal action showed up. Eventually, this mob and their demands got them something. Let's see what that something was. Look with me if you would at verse 35. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Apparently there was some type of meteorite that had hit near Ephesus and that was seen as something from Artemis. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you've brought these men who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. Meaning, when those who are authorized to decide cases get together. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today. Since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The town clerk's response to the crowd is rather fascinating. And it might reveal more than you may initially think. Let's consider in our remaining time together, both his argument and then the implication of his argument. First, uh, his argument. The, the position, if you will, of this town clerk is clear. It's simple. He simply rattled off his reasons. And there are four of them. Number one, he said, the Ephesians' status as the worldwide hub of the temple of Artemis was not in question. It simply wasn't up for debate. They were the hub. Number two, Paul's friends grabbed by the mob were not guilty of robbing from the temple or reviling the temple. They simply hadn't done what they were accused of doing. Number three, justice by a chaotic crowd wasn't going to happen. The law prescribed a process and the mob should go home because they weren't abiding by the process. If there really was a crime, let legal means sort it out. And then number four, his last statement in verse 40 is dripping with irony. It's one of those places where if, if you read the Bible like it's meant to be read, it's almost 
hilarious. He says it, it's the crowd, not the Christians, who are in danger of causing a riot. The city clerk was persuasive. Following this speech, the crowds went home. His argument settled things without violence. It's the only place in the book of Acts that this happens. We ought to thank God for level-headed leaders, even if we don't agree with all the positions that they hold. Now, that's his argument, but perhaps more important, would you consider with me the implication of his argument? And this might be a little uncomfortable. So again, I want to encourage you to pray about it, to read it, to talk it out with each other, to not merely write off God's word, but to let it bear fruit. Here's the implication of his argument. The Christians in Ephesus were no threat to the peace and order of even a secular society. The Christians in Ephesus were no threat to the peace and order of even a secular society. Their allegiance to Jesus Christ did not translate into them being insurrectionists against Rome. Nor did it make the silversmith's accusations against them appropriate. Now the human author in, of Acts, the historian and physician Luke, he almost certainly chose to include Acts 19 in the Bible in large part to show that Christians aren't criminals. Following Jesus, as I said earlier, does not include a refusal to submit to Caesar. This means that until Jesus returns, in all of its complexities, we can be both citizens of heaven and citizens of Tempe simultaneously. Not only can we, we must. The one doesn't cancel out or render the other null and void. Yes, as Christians, we worship God and God alone. But as citizens of the United States or whatever country holds your citizenship, we obey the laws of the land. And we don't retreat from society, we lean in and seek to function for the ultimate good of society. It seems to me that some of us have quite a bit to think and pray about in this context. And this text couldn't be more timely as the madness of crowds fills our ears and this country moves perilously towards yet another presidential election. Christianity does not set out to disrupt to society and disturb the peace. Our focus as a group of Jesus followers is not primarily to gain political power. Consider Paul's mission approach. If, this, if you feel the hair standing up on the back of your neck, consider with me the way Paul went to do about ministry. When he showed up at Ephesus, what did he do? Think about it. A temple four times the size of the Parthenon. The reason people would go to Ephesus is to go to that temple. When Paul went into town seeking to 
stake claim for Jesus Christ. What did he do? Did he go to the temple with signs and picket? Did he seek with a group of wise arsonists to burn it down? Did he sneak in and knock Artemis off her pedestal so she'd fall and crash? No, he didn't do any of those things. Instead, he simply preached the gospel. You see, in terms of really making progress in a city, it's only as the gospel begins to transform individual hearts and those people gather into churches and their behavior begins to reflect more and more of their identity as holy ones, as saints. It's only as that happens that a city actually begins to change. As missionaries today travel into cities like uh, Phil and Julie Hoshawara, who live in Thailand, where there are lots and lots of temples. They don't go into a city and tear down the idols. They don't burn the temple. No, they preach the gospel. Why? Why? Here's the critical point. If you don't hear anything else today, I hope you'll, you'll hear this. Because tearing down the temple won't actually accomplish anything. You see, sinners will simply erect another idol. The change isn't an external one that's needed. The change is internal. We Christians will preach the gospel. We'll see people come to know Jesus. And we'll be aware that in God's providence, if more and more churches like this one exist, then the gospel will take root and it will bear fruit in changing society. The failure of many to realize this basic, basic reality of how God works is what has made so many churches weak and worldly. It's what confuses our witness and the world. Church on Mill, we could aim today to tear down by force all the idols around the city of Tempe, and there are many. But tomorrow when we get up, there would already be new ones erected. Christianity changes a city not by force, not by coercion, but through word ministry. Word ministry that results in the explosive power of new gospel affections of a passion for Jesus, not for the things that idols provide. This is why Paul preached and God converted sinners and in faith they turned from idolatry to the one true God. And by the unseen but vastly superior power of the Holy Spirit, this is how societies change. Now, this is to say nothing about the fact that it is good and right to argue for justice in a society. But we're not expecting that somehow that justice would then convert people. That's not how it works. If we want good for our city, let's labor 
not to remove enough external means to sin that somehow Tempe will become morally renovated. Instead, let's simply work for internal transformation. For that's how God works. I fear that some believers in the United States today need to learn history a bit. Did you know that you're more likely to meet a Christian in Tehran, for example, than you are in Paris or Rome or London? Much of the spiritual wasteland of Europe exists today because the church and state got so intertwined you lost the one to the other. Church, let's share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's herald the life-giving message that grace frees idolaters from enslavement to gods that aren't gods. Let's preach Christ crucified. Let's live as a community of redeemed sinners who love our Lord. Let's help each other see that even as Christians, we are still prone to erecting idols. Let's help each other worship the one true God. Let's expect that idolatry will end only by the death and resurrection of Jesus being applied to filthy sinners like us. Let's lift up Jesus Christ as the only one who can bear the weight of worship, the only one worthy of ultimate allegiance. And let's live with an infectious joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. May every Artemis come down as Jesus is lifted up. Beloved, may that love for Jesus and the explosive power of new affections, better affections, well up within us. As they do, Tempe will change. If we try it the other way around, Tempe will not change. We pray with me. Father, I recognize this message is certainly not without controversy. I pray today that you would do good work in each of our hearts. I pray in particular for anybody here today who is not a follower of Jesus Christ. God, in your grace and mercy, would you lead them to see and savor you, to recognize how much better life is Worshiping the God who is God, not gods who are not gods. And would you help us, Christians, brothers and sisters, to not get caught up in the madness of crowds, but in a quiet and tranquil life, as we delight in Jesus Christ, as we help each other turn from idolatry, and as we declare the good news of Jesus to all who will hear. In Jesus' name.